Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. I hope everyone's staying safe, staying home. Um, I've been hearing some really great stories about the way that you all are working overtime to connect with one another and to be available to others around you, to serve them as much as you can. I've heard wonderful stories of people encouraging each other, thinking of one another, and it really does lift my heart to hear those things. Keep that up. I know that these are hard times we're living through, but you guys are making the most of it, and you're being very creative in the way that you are used by God in one another's lives. So I hope to hear those stories ongoing. It looks like we need to dig in and be at this for at least another month, and so let's prepare ourselves mentally and emotionally for that. Let's not be caught grumbling about it. It is something we can't avoid, so let's tap into it. Let's lean into it and make the most of it for Christ. I also want to say a big thank you to all those who have stayed very faithful in their financial partnership with us and the stewardship of their money. Um, Your giving during this shutdown period makes a huge difference in our ability to keep things functioning as well as to be available to help others who are in need right now. And so I want to just flash up a quick slide. Um, If you want to give online, this is the best place to send it to. You can use Chase QuickPay or QuickPay by Zelle if your bank uses that service. And if you prefer to send in a paper check, um, you can mail it to this address. And we will make sure that someone stops in at the the office to check the mail at least a couple times a week. With that said, I, I do thank you for remembering to be faithful to that. And let's continue to just do the things that we've committed ourselves to do uh, all around. This morning, I want to continue in our series on the book of Psalms. And thank you, Randy, for reading that passage for us. I've really enjoyed um, hearing the scripture read by different members of our church. And so I hope you're enjoying that as well. And it's a chance to see each other's faces and to have the word of God read for us by our brothers and sisters. He read from Psalm 71, and I'm going to interact with that passage for sure, but I'm going to interact with a number of other passages as well. The title of my message is Finishing Well. Finishing Well. And it comes from Psalm 71 and other texts. And it's all about um, what it means to come to the end of life and realize that we did finish well. You know, I'm going to throw some stats at you this morning, and I know that can be a little overwhelming if you're not a numbers person, but I promise you every stat is thrown up very intentionally. I was flooded with statistics this week, but I've chosen the ones that I think tell a story about where we are as a country. And the story to be told is that America, plain and simple, is getting older. As a country, we are aging, and aging in large numbers, and aging fast. There are 76 million baby boomers, and boomers are the ones born between 1944 and 1964. And right now, boomers are the ages 56 to 76. Right behind them are 82 million Gen Xers, and I'm part of the Gen X generation. Um, Gen Xers were born between 1965 to 1979. And I think that describes or captures the vast majority of folks at Harvest. Right now, Gen Xers are between the ages of 41 to 55. So right there you can see that we have like 158 million Americans 
who are rapidly approaching their twilight years. Here's another uh, crazy stat. I want you to think about this. Let this soak in. Roughly 10,000 people in America will turn 65 years old every single day for the next 20 years. That's 10,000 Americans hitting retirement age every single day without ceasing for the next 20 years. And when you look at a lot of the big business, the industry that sprung up around serving this huge aging community, a lot of it is such important work. But when you really look at the um, senior care and senior support um, big business industries, so much of the efforts seem to be centered around resisting or fighting or pushing back the effects of aging rather than embracing and preparing for this inevitable reality. A lot of it also centers around uh, making sure we are comfortable and secure in our old age. And that's important, I know. But it begs the question, is there more to being ready for old age than being financially secure and physically healthy? Let me give you some other statistics about um, retirement in America and old age in America. 56% of Americans are fully retired before the age of 65. So more and more, people are not even waiting for the traditional 65 years old to retire. Um, more than half of us are retiring before that. The current life expectancy in the United States is 78.6 years. If you think about the implications of that, that means that Americans are spending nearly 20% or more of their lives in retirement. Now, that's one-fifth of our lives spent in what we thought was going to just be this, this sort of uh, fade out to black. But a full fifth of our lives are spent in those post-career years. And it's becoming increasingly common for people all over the world to live up to and past the age of 100. We call those folks centenarians. And in 2015, there were 72,000 centenarians in the United States. Some studies, one Pew Research study I came across projected that by 2050 we're going to see almost 4 million people on earth at age 100 or beyond. So the medical technology and the uh, safety, generally speaking, of life is allowing for people to live longer and longer and for those latter years of life to be more and more healthy than they've ever been. And the reason I share that is because the, the story is we're getting older. We haven't adjusted our picture of when people stop being uh, contributors to society. People are still exiting their professional work at age 65, and they're living a really long time after that. So what does it mean in light of this, beyond just the physical and financial, to be ready to finish our life journey well? This psalm and the other um, passages we're going to interact with help us answer that question, or at least to explore it in light of what God has to say in His Word. And the first thing I want to point out here is that um, finishing life is inevitable. Finishing life is inevitable. I suppose the first step in finishing life well is to accept and acknowledge that you're going to finish life. And I know that seems self-evident, but when I was younger, I felt like I was going to live forever. 
the way I played sports, I had no regard for tomorrow. I abused my body, and my friends would always get, you know, you only have two knees. Uh, yeah, I know, uh, and uh, I'll keep going this way until they're blown. Well, they're blown. <laughs> and so I realized that when I was younger, I actually thought I was immortal and bulletproof, indestructible. But the truth is our days on earth are, in fact, finite and numbered. Psalm 90, verse 12, gives us this simple admonishment. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Seven years ago, I preached from Psalm 90. I wasn't in a series, but it was just about stewardship. And I preached about the stewardship of time in our lives from Psalm 90. And verse 12 speaks to numbering our days. The New Living Translation translates it this way, help us to realize the brevity of life. And I think that captures the meaning really well. To number our days is not to literally just one, two, three, four. It's not to count the days, but to acknowledge that the days are numbered, that we don't have infinity days in this earthly life, and to then live in light of that. I did an illustration seven years ago when I gave that sermon originally at Harvest, and I'm happy I, I saved the props because I think it's so relevant. It's worth repeating today. If you were here for that, you will definitely remember this because a lot of you have mentioned it. If you're newer to our church, I hope this will be uh, something that leaves an indelible impression in your memory that you'll think about this all the time. So to number our days, I think, has at least two aspects. One is to just number all the days in our lives and realize the full span of a human life is a finite, limited number of days. So what I've done <clears throat> is back then, the average life expectancy was a little closer to 75 years. So we're doing good. We've gained about three years life expectancy or so uh, in the last seven years. But I've taken enough BBs to represent every single day in an average human life. Each one of these jars up here has 15 years worth of days represented by BBs. A day of your life right here. So I wanted to show this to you because when I saw this, it was sobering because days just seem to fly by one after the other. And I'm like, man, there's, a, there's not a lot of BBs that I can draw from. And to give you a bit of perspective here, this is the span of a whole human life. But if you're 15 years old, then... Right off the bat, that's how many you've got left. A lot of you are around 30 years old. If you're 30 years old, that's what you've got left. Maybe you're like me and you're 45 years old or a little over. That's pretty much it. And if you're 60 years old, and this is, of course, not predicting anything about you specifically. You could live much longer or less longer. But statistically speaking, if you're 60, that's what you've got left. When I did this, I was closer to this situation. <clears throat> so what I did was realize that to number my days, I can take that rather literally. And so I did. Seven years ago, based on my calculations, if I lived to a statistically average lifespan or life expectancy based on actuarial tables, I took that number of days and I put that many BBs into this jar seven years ago. And every day since then, at the end of each day, I take one of these out and I put it in another discard jar. I got to tell you, this thing was about up to here when I first preached this message. 
And every day as I pull that BB out and I drop it in, it's almost become like a ceremony because it's a sobering reminder that those are not infinite. That, that if when I look at that and that's the number of days I have left, it reminds me that I have to make each day count and I have to make all my days as a total count for something. Life is a precious gift and the, the time we have on this earth, we will make decisions and do things and make investments that can ring through eternity for good or for ill. That's a choice we have. We get one shot here on earth to make choices that will echo through eternity. And whenever I take the thing out of this jar, it's just for me uh, a daily reminder to treasure the gift of life on this earth and to make each one of those days count. And I've got to tell you, to have a visual representation of the days you have left, to literally number your days in this manner, is a pretty um, sobering thing. I don't know if you'd ever consider doing this, but I've got to tell you, it has affected the way that I live my life each day. And it's helped me to remember consistently that if nothing else, I know that this journey on earth is going to finish at some point. Unless I'm alive when Jesus returns, I will go the way of every other human being that has pretty much gone before me. This life will end. And just by acknowledging it and having clarity on that, it's the first step in knowing then how we should live in light of this. A second observation I want to make in building this case is that finishing well is a choice. Finishing well is a choice. And I don't mean that you can control exactly how your life finishes, but this world is not built in such a way that it will just help you slide into a glorious and fruitful end to your life story. The world that we live in is pretty rough. I want to go back to Psalm 90. I know we are supposed to be in Psalm 71. We'll get there. But Psalm 90 um, has this to say. Verse 10 has this to say. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Not only are our days numbered, the psalmist here says that they are filled with trouble and sorrow. It's pretty depressing because he says even the best of them are filled with trouble and sorrow. Now what's interesting is Psalm 90 is the only psalm attributed to Moses, not to David or one of his contemporaries. So this is a very old psalm, a song that Israel had sung for hundreds of years. And this psalm most likely parallels the events going on in Moses' life recorded for us in Numbers chapter 20. That single chapter, Numbers 20, if you ever have a chapter like this in your life, you'll know just how rough life can be. In that single chapter, what happens in Moses' life is that his sister Miriam dies. He treasured his sister and she dies. And then his brother Aaron dies. And in between their deaths is his life-defining failure, the greatest failure of his life and ministry and leadership, and a failure so significant that it, it, it disqualified him from entering the promised land. The culmination or the climax for which his whole life had been building, he didn't get to enjoy 
because of that life-defining failure. I don't know if you've ever had a chapter in the book of your life that was that tragic, but in the span of one chapter in his life, he lost two of the people he loved the most, and he lost the final chapter of his life's work and dream. So you can understand why he's in a pensive mood and he's thinking about how painful life is, how short, how full of disappointment it can be. And I'm not trying to say that to depress you, but just to say that life itself won't hand you a nice finish on a silver platter. Life is not designed in a broken world to help us finish well. That's a choice we've got to make, and we need absolutely to put ourselves in a place of surrender and dependence on God if we want our stories to end well at all. I always get so blessed when I see a young person come to faith in Christ. Recently during our Holy Week services, uh, we heard the news that a young member of our church turned his heart over to Jesus during the Good Friday service, and I was just so overjoyed to hear that. And I, I especially marvel when a young person comes to Christ so sincerely at a young age because there are so many other things pulling on young people today to entice them and give them other things to live for, things that have an immediate treasure, immediate gratification. And so when I see a young person surrender their heart and they capture the best years of their life to live for him, it moves me, inspires me. I'm sure it inspires you too. You know, but as I've gotten older, I think what moves me even more is not when a young person begins, but when an old person is still at it when their life comes to a close. That moves me and impresses me even more because I know how hard life can be. I've heard and experienced much of the pain and the disappointment that this earthly life brings to people. And just knowing that, and knowing that whereas a dollar lost can always be earned again, every day of our lives that is finished is an irrecoverable thing. I won't get that time back no matter how much I wish I could. So I understand that this life is really difficult and that the things that life in a broken world do to us challenge the sustaining of our faith. So when I see a person who's old and gray and bent over and still following and loving Jesus, that stirs me. To me, it's one of the greatest proofs of the reality and the faithfulness, the power of God is that He can hold a single human life through all those trials close to His side. I don't look at that old person and say, how did you do that? I first think what a great God we must have to hold a person's heart through all of that drama and all that trial. But then I also do give that person some credit because they have made consistently that good choice again and again over the course of their lives in the face of their trouble to turn towards God rather than away from Him. See, we can establish the fact that life is short and difficult, but getting clarity on that is not enough. We have to respond by choosing to turn to God. You know, a new believer, it's not as challenging to trust in God when your life still has that new car smell. But you have a couple fender benders, and you spill a couple uh, milkshakes on the carpet in your, your car, and you realize it's not as easy to be enthusiastic about driving when you've logged a few miles and some bumps and wear and tear on your life. So when you see that happening to you, 
Know that God is faithful and He can help you finish well. But you also have to make good choices about that. As we get older and we gain perspective on this, I think that is one of the greatest bits of wisdom we develop is that God is carrying us, but we must also turn to Him. I love King David's reflection, his conclusion on this matter, as he himself was thinking about the difficulty and shortness of life. In Psalm 39, verses 4 to 7, listen to what he says. and This is the New Living Translation. Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows, and all our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth, not knowing who will spend it. That's something anyone on earth, regardless of their faith, can say. But look at his conclusion. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. I think that's an important statement David makes because he's made a very honest, true observation about the essential meaninglessness of this life how much toil there is. And at the end of it, whether your life rode high or rode low, in the end, they all come to a similar end. And so his question is, where do I find a lasting, enduring hope in the face of that? The writer of Psalm 71 makes a very similar choice. And in verse 20 of Psalm 71, here's what the psalmist says. And he's so honest about this. Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter. You will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. When the psalmist says, you will restore my life again, we have to know that he's not making a prediction. He's making a decision. He's not saying, I know exactly what will happen here. What he's saying is, I made a decision in this moment of challenging trial to say to you, God, that if any help is to come, it will come from you. I won't let this trial be the thing that determines whether I trust in you or abandon you. I won't let that happen. As far as I'm able to do it, I will decide to place my faith, my trust, and my hope in you, and not in some outcome, not in some likely circumstance that will affect me. This psalmist is not trying to give us a money-back guarantee on how a relationship with God works. He's not saying if you're faithful to God, He will always deliver you from every trial. He is making a decision that that will be the posture of his heart no matter what he faces. He's proclaiming his faith in God. Now, in spite of the fact that Psalm 71 is clearly written from the heart of an old man in the face of great trial. I mean, this is personal attack that is relational and even physical. He is really up against people who want to do him real harm. And he's at the same time he's being attacked this way, he's growing increasingly aware of the frailty that is overtaking him because he's older and older. There is, I I know we, we like to declare in our modern world today that just the opposite of the reality is true and that makes it so. So we can say age is just a number. 
Well, I'm, I'm only in my 50s, and I can tell you age is not just a number. It comes with a cost. There is a diminishment that does come with aging. And so the psalmist is very honest about all this. I'm under attack. Life is getting harder. More people are out to get me. And at the same time, I don't have the vigor and the resilience and the strength I once did to fight back or even to run away. And yet, in spite of those cold realities, the psalmist of Psalm 71, this whole song he's written is brimming with words of decision and dependence. It's a song of confidence and it's a song of lament. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. It's possible to honestly lament the things that happen to us in life and yet finally in the end as an act of faith and decision reach the conclusion that nonetheless, remember Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, even if he doesn't deliver us, we will not abandon him because he is worthy of our ongoing faithfulness. When you look at this next slide, I'm certainly not going to read all these, but I want, you, I want you to just see how many of the verses in Psalm 71 carry in them strong words of decision and dependence on God. Just to, to survey a few, in you I have taken refuge. I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. Do not be far from me, God. I will declare your marvelous deeds. You will restore my life again. There is this beautiful dance, this this back and forth cadence of I will, you will. I will, you are. See, it's not just bravado. We're not just fooling ourselves. We're saying that this God has already proven enough times in our lives that He loves us. He is for us. He has come through. And so when we are facing trouble and we decide to turn to Him, it's not just manipulation of our minds. It is an expression, a response to a God who has revealed Himself more faithfully than we've ever really acknowledged. It's a decision to trust God because of what He is like. Not just a blind decision to trust Him, but I will because you are. I will because you have. I will because you do. That's where faith comes from. It's not some quality within us we dig deep to produce. It is a response to seeing God for who He has been. And for being fair to God just the way we want everyone to be fair to us. And when He has done something for us, to give credit where credit is due and not sell Him short and pretend in our misery that God hasn't been faithful. I really appreciated what John Piper has to say on this. He, he once said, we can take, in, our, in the face of our troubles, we can take refuge in God or we can take offense at our troubles. And in typical John Piper fashion, he said, I don't want to grow old complaining. I don't want to be one of those people because trouble is inevitable. It's not like anyone, anyone's going to go, what? Life is hard? Is that true? Everyone knows this. But some people add the most unpleasant soundtrack. There is no end to the whining and the bitterness. And I know your pain may be very significant. I don't want to belittle it. I'm saying, though, even in the face of great pain, there is enough historical precedent for us to see in the examples of other men and women who loved God that you can still choose under any circumstance to take refuge in God rather than take offense at your trouble. I don't know if you've ever had to carry another human being. Um, 
we stop carrying our kids in from the car when they reach the age of nine because our backs are strong enough and they're getting bigger. But I know that there's a difference when you're carrying another person between when they cling to you and they hang on or when they just lay there like dead weight and you have to literally pick them up like a sack of concrete. I think this is an example or an illustration of the difference it makes. I'm still doing the caring. It's not like that person is providing any real help, but yet they do because when they cling to me, they are in some way participating in the act of my carrying them. I wouldn't say they carry themselves or that they even help that much, but it makes a huge difference when they cling versus when they just lay there. And the question I have for you is when you're facing trouble, do you turn to God like, all right, whatever. If you can help, I'm just going to lay here. You better rescue me because I'm doing nothing. Or do you cling? And if you've ever had to carry a child or in some weird situation, carry another adult, you know what a difference it makes. Now, I'm not suggesting that God's weak and He needs our help, but this is the only contribution we make to our rescue is that we cling to Him and make His carrying us a joy rather than a burden. Our troubles are not always a choice, but our response to trouble is a choice. So the question is, when you face the trials of life, Every choice you make in response to that trouble will either help you finish poorly or finish well. And you get to decide at least your response to the troubles of life. Let me give you one last point before we wrap up here. And that is that finishing well blesses other people. Finishing well is not just about getting a prize or a good grade at the end of our lives to approve of us. But finishing well is also about leaving a mark on the life of others because even as our lives are fading to black, other lives are on their ascendancy. As our show is ending, you might call my life season one, there are people putting together season two somewhere else. And so the, the real gift as we end our lives well is that we don't just end our lives well, but we help other lives run well so that theirs also finish well because of the contribution we've made. You know, the majority of our adult lives are spent focusing on the technical aspects of our professional work. We focus so much on accumulating um, professional and technical expertise and experience, and most of you at Harvest are very good at what you do for a living. You've probably forgotten more things in your field than others have learned. Um, you know, so that's the truth, is we're very capable, and we store up all of this, but I'm always astounded to see in our fast-paced, fast-moving world how fast we become obsolete when we sit on the bench even for like a breath. You know, I, I used to be a budding genetic engineer in training. I was doing recombinant DNA experiments and playing with the building blocks of life at a pretty high level. So there was a time in my life when I thought, I'm a genetics expert. Well, just the other day, I was reading an article that was talking about DNA. It said A, G, C, T, and I had to actually pause. I mean, this is like being an English professor and then forgetting the alphabet. I had to sit there and go, what are the names of the nucleotides again that build DNA? Now, granted, in, in my defense, that was like 30 years ago, but still, it's like forgetting your alphabet after 30 years. I realized that when you don't do a thing, even for a breath, I, mean, I used to run the Office of Web Development at Loyola, and six months after I finished that job, 
I could not be hired again to my old position. I had been rendered obsolete just by six months of being benched. That's just the world we live in. So, yes, most of our lives will be spent building this technical knowledge and experience, but there will come a day when no one will come to you anymore for what's up here and what's in here. Every day, we're diminished. And eventually, others will come with quicker minds and stronger bodies. And we will need to yield and, and move out of the way so that those who are rising can take the mantle of leadership and responsibility that we once held. So we can romanticize retirement and dream of uh, idle days spent in leisure. But we should never forget that what drove us through life was not comfort and pleasure, but a sense of purpose. And you take that sense of purpose away. I mean, just talk to a fresh retiree. After the initial giddiness of not having to wake up fades off, what they'll tell you is, I don't know why I get up in the morning anymore. There used to be a reason, but now I have to figure out what that's going to be. Because when those external things that framed my life were taken away, I had to really question, who am I and what am I here for? If you've built your entire sense of worth and identity on your career and your professional life, I'm not saying be a slouch at work, but if you've done that and haven't invested in growing and developing in any other significant way, you're going to face a devastating void when you retire from your job. Because that thing which defines you will be gone and no one in the world will come to you for those things anymore. The thing that gave you value when you brought yourself to any situation will be removed and the question will echo in your heart. Then what am I here for? Ecclesiastes 12.4 in the New Living Translation says this, Remember God, Him, before the door to life's opportunities is closed and the sound of work fades. Now you rise at the first chirping of the birds, but then all their sounds will grow faint. The writer of Ecclesiastes is admonishing us and admonishing younger people to not be mindless of God in their youth. Because when you're younger, there's so many other things to focus on and you feel like you could do so much of life yourself. But a day is coming when all those things will be taken away and you have to answer deeper, more existential questions about your life. And his caution is, when you're still young, remember who God is and who you are in response to Him. Develop other dimensions of your personhood so that when the sound of work fades and you don't rise with the crack of dawn, you still know that you have a real and meaningful purpose in this life. When we look at what the psalmist who wrote Psalm 71 says in verse 18, this is really the verse that pulled me in to preach from this chapter. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. I love that our psalmist pleads with God to give him sustained strength and to help him stay alive long enough that the last act of his life will be fully focused on giving away his testimony his wisdom, his faith to the generation that comes after. Even as our lives are fading and our role in the marketplace is diminishing, 
we can have a completely valid and perhaps even more eternal purpose for the last chapter of our lives than what was driving us through most of our adult lives. And the psalmist gives us a beautiful perspective that the value of the last years of our life are not to sit idly in leisure and comfort without purpose, but to make sure that the next generation coming up gets the full benefit of our life's experience and the fact that when an old person says to you, after all the miles I've logged, I have known this God to be faithful. He is worthy of your trust. He can be believed in, and He is very real. There's no way to empirically prove the existence of God, but when someone who is that close to the end of life's journey can look in my eyes and still tell me, this God who you're, you're following now, He is more real than anything else in this universe. Believe in Him. Trust Him. I testify to God that He has been exceedingly faithful. What a gift that is to the next generation. And our world needs this. There is such a disregard for the aged aged in our culture today. The one prejudice that's left in open season is ageism. But that's a huge loss to our society because the elderly have something so powerful to give away. It is the testimony of their lives and of the God they've come to know. Let me finish this way. I think most of us work hard enough at our day jobs that I understand why we fantasize about a long stretch of no responsibility, just leisure. I've joked often that I'm going to finish Netflix as soon as I retire. I'm going to read all the books I couldn't read. I don't know. I think after, I, I, maybe it's been your experience, too. after binge-watching one show, aren't you sort of sick of watching screens? I know I get that way. And so when I finished watching all the things worth watching and I realized I'm just watching the dregs now, I'm just reading garbage, something's going to haunt me. What else am I here for? The picture we have in America of retirement actually robs people of their real purpose in the final years of life. Let me conclude by giving you something that John Piper said many years ago and wrote in a book that I thought was really well said. I can't improve on it. So here's what he had to say. When you don't believe in heaven to come and you are not content in the glory of Christ now, you will seek the kind of retirement that the world seeks. But what a strange reward for a Christian to set his sights on. Twenty years of leisure while living in the midst of the last days of infinite consequence for millions of people who need Christ. What a tragic way to finish the last mile before entering the presence of the king who finished his last mile so differently. In America, we disregard the elderly as having finished their ride and now they're just in the waiting room for the end. I think that is a tragic way to think about some of the most valuable members of our society. We're all going to get there. And let's reframe how we think about those final years of life. We can finish well by having a new purpose. And we can begin training ourselves for that even now. To learn how to impart wisdom, how to offer support and guidance and encouragement, and above all else, how to see and savor and then testify to the goodness and reality of the God we've served all our lives, who has so strongly supported us. In a moment, Audrey's going to sing a beautiful song, 
And I'm going to invite you, if you need to reflect and respond in your heart, to let her minister to you through that song. Um, there will also be lyrics flashed so that you can sing along with her. It's a song that testifies to how God has been so faithful through the generations. And then it leaves open an invitation to us to then also be faithful to this faithful God in our generation, in the generations to come. I'm going to hand you over to her, and, and as we are ministered to by that song, let that be a prayer, an invitation for you to think about what you've done, about how you've lived your life, how you're thinking about the end of your own life. I'll return at the end to give a benediction, and then we'll close our service with that. comes the benediction. Join me as you receive the blessing. Life is very short, but life is also very hard. And everyone finishes, but not everyone finishes well. God has been more faithful to us than we usually acknowledge. And so we can commit ourselves to honor Him to take refuge in Him rather than taking offense at our troubles. And we can prepare ourselves so that when our days come to an end, our last act will be one of faithfulness and purpose. Finish your days filling the earth with a testimony that God is real and God is good and God is worthy to be praised and followed all the days of our life. May this be your legacy, your privilege, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Be blessed now and forever. Amen. I want to thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, We really look forward to the day when we can be back together in person, but until then, we are going to lean into this and make the most of this situation we find ourselves in. Tune in every week and be with us and do what you can to stay connected to one another and to Jesus in your own life. If you want to have a time in your home of personal reflection or a short discussion with your family, we're going to flash up a slide that will give you a couple prompts to do just that. And until next week, stay safe, stay home, stay connected to Jesus. We love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.